the book of Jonah. We'll begin at chapter 1. And um, Jonah chapter 1. Uh, This is sort of a a sort of a bittersweet service for me um, because as Scott said, uh, you know, this is our last time uh, doing a 9 a.m. service unless, um, you know, something happens to change that. Um, I I don't foresee anything, but just in case, I want to leave that door open. But it's bittersweet because this is like the only reality I really know. Since I came here, I think I've only seen you all in the church twice, like all together twice when I candidated, and then the first week I came, and then the world shut down. And so next week uh, is like starting a new rhythm for me, um, you know, and, and it's like breaking an old rhythm and starting a new rhythm, but I'm looking forward to that. And for some of you, um, maybe this is breaking a rhythm that you might like and, and going to a rhythm that, you know, we used to have. But um, my excitement about next week is about seeing all of us together in one space. And, and that's exciting for me because I think that's what the church is. The church is us coming together and ministering to one another in all the ways we do that, in our differences and in, in the things that we fellowship around together. Um, so I'm excited about next week. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing everybody here and to hear the gaggle that happens right before uh, worship and, and then to see the, the congreg- congregating outside and just to see everybody together and fellowshipping together is going to be really sweet for me and I hope it will be for you as well. So something to look forward to um, is next week. All right, Jonah, we're going to be looking at Jonah chapter 1 and chapter 2 and so I'm going to read both of those chapters because I think both of those chapters set, set the stage of what we're going to be talking about this morning. Um, I've entitled the sermon, A Severe Mercy. I don't do well with titling sermons. Uh, Marsha normally asks me, like, Pastor Dennis, what do you want to title the sermon? And I, I normally tell her, ah, whatever. Like, whatever the first thing comes to my mind. Uh, it, to me, it doesn't matter what you name the sermon. Uh, you know, I can name the sermon the same thing every week. It doesn't matter. It's, it's about what God is saying to us and what the Holy Spirit um, kind of presses on our heart ultimately is what matters. So Jonah chapter 1 and chapter 2. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come. Let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, 
Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, and they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. And deeps surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Well, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father... Son and Holy Spirit, indeed, we thank you that indeed this is your word, that you've given us your people. You've given us your word so we can read it and sing it and pray it, that we can hear it preached and proclaimed and it can dwell in our hearts and minds. And your word is designed to change us, to transform us into the image of Jesus and to transform us into those who love your law and are obedient to you. This transformative power that your word have may it be present with us today. May we be blessed by it and encouraged by it and live and desire it always. Come now, Holy Spirit. This is your word and we are your people. Cement your word to our hearts. 
Bless us now, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, last week we took a special look at the sailors. We, we went down and we took a deep dive and looked at the sailors. And one of the things we said about the sailors is that these sailors were being used by Jonah to flee from the presence of the Lord. But in an act of irony, God takes these sailors that Jonah was using to flee from the presence of the Lord and use them as object lessons for Jonah, to teach Jonah what being a Yahweh follower really looks like. And a Yahweh follower is someone who not only professes faith in the Lord, as Jonah did in Jonah chapter 1, verse 9, when he says, I am a Hebrew, and I worship and serve the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. Right? Jonah makes this proclamation, but is that true? Does he really serve Yahweh? The answer to that question is no, of course he doesn't serve Yahweh. If he truly served Yahweh, he would have immediately made a beeline to go to Nineveh. So even his profession is foolishness. And yet God in his infinite grace and mercy shows him what it truly looks like to be a Yahweh follower through the sailors. And the sailors evidence this by worshiping and fearing Yahweh, by making sacrifices, by having a change of heart and mind. And what we saw in that moment was a profound act of God's grace, that even though Jonah was disobedient, even though Jonah had a heart that was indifferent, that even though Jonah was a broken representation of what a true Yahweh follower is supposed to look like, God still used him in a, such a way to bring salvation to these sailors by his profession. Because when Jonah made that profession, even though it was insincere, even though it wasn't true, the sailors reacted to that immediately and turned to Yahweh and started worshiping him. And what we said that was profound to us is that even though so often we are broken and, and broken representations of who Yahweh truly is, even though you and I are often stiff-necked, we often go astray, even in the midst of that, even in the midst of the fact that we're often indifferent, God still chooses to use us for his glory and his purposes. That shows the heart of a gracious and compassionate God. But I do have to say this. If God can use you, even though at times you're disobedient and indifferent to his word, even though sometimes you are a broken cistern, you are a dull knight, how much more can God use you if you are walking in obedience to him, right? That's what, that's what the people of God are meant to see in this passage as one of the lessons. If we are often disobedient and God uses us, how much more can God use us if we are obedient, if we are walking in light of God and his word? That's, what we, that's where we left off last week. Now, this week, I want to pick up a theme in the book of Jonah, and it's the theme of God's providence. God's providence. Now, notice I said God's providence and not God's sovereignty. And I, I have to thank John Piper in his recent book on providence for this, because I think it's an excellent distinction. Now, look, the doctrine of God's sovereignty is important, right? All of us need to understand and know that God is sovereign. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we're talking about God's right and God's power to act 
in his creation. That just right in his power. One of the greatest expression of sovereignty that I've ever heard is by the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper. And here's what Abraham Kuyper said. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, doesn't cry mine. Sovereignty is at the heart of our theology. We believe that God has the right and power to do whatever he, has, he says he's going to do. Have, by the way, have you ever walked into a place and wondered to yourself, who's in charge here? What's going on? Like, who's in charge? Because everything's a mess. For God's people, we never should wonder who's in charge. When we look at the world, we should never wonder, like, whoa, is, is God real? Like, does he exist? Why is all of this going on? Let me assure you, God is in charge. Every aspect of his creation is under his sovereign care. So, so we need to always have firm in our mind the sovereignty of God. But as John Kuyper rightly says, the, the providence is where you and I live. God's providence is where you and I live. Because it's God's providence has the idea of God's purposeful actions in creation towards his people. We have a wonderful idiom in English that describes providence, and it's this idiom known as see to it. Have you ever heard somebody say that? I had a boss that would say that all the time. Dennis, see to it that that happens. Or he would say, I'll see to it that it happens. What is he trying to say? What does it mean to see to it? To see to it means that you will take all the necessary steps possible to make sure that something gets done. That's what it means to see to it. To see to it means, if somebody says, I will see to it that it will happen, it contains two ideas. Number one, you're looking forward, but the other idea is this, that you will make sure that it happens. That's providence. Providence is God seeing to it that regardless of where you go or what you do, you are being shaped and molded into the image of Christ. God's sovereignty and his providence are like guardrails on a mountain where there's, no sh there's not much of a shoulder, right? And the only thing that's going over is death, right? That's God's sovereignty and his providence. They hem us in. God makes sure that you and I are doing what we're supposed to do because he loves us and he cares for us. Now, why do I mention all of these things? And let me pause here and say this. Providence is necessary in your life. Those two concepts of God's sovereignty and providence is necessary to your life. I can't tell you how many times I hear people say, why did God allow this to happen? Have you heard somebody say that? Of course, we hear it all the time. Some of us wonder, well, why did God give us the parents that he gave us? Why, why did God give us the spouse that he gave us? Why, why did God allow this event to happen in this way? Why does God allow me to struggle with this sin? Why is it that I have this job? Why is it that these set of circumstances happen to me? Why is it that my children are going astray? Or why is it that I don't have a good relationship with people in my family? Like, we constantly ask questions like that. Those questions are answered when you sit down and think of God's sovereignty and providence. Because if God is truly in charge, right, like we say he is, okay, and if God is being intentional in the way he acts in the world, if all of his actions are purposeful, and we know that God is good, that that's the fundamental reality that God shows us in the gospel, 
then we know for a fact that everything that God allows to happen to us is for our good. And you might be saying, well, pastor, how do you know that? Look to the cross. There is no greater example of God's sovereignty and providence in the cross. What did Peter say in his sermon in Acts 2? You all remember? He said that Jesus Christ was lifted up according to the foreknowledge of God, that he was handed over according to the foreknowledge of God by evil and wicked men. Why? For what purpose? So that we might be redeemed. The cross is the greatest example of God's sovereignty and providence in our lives. So if you ever wonder, why is God allowing this to happen to me? Why did God allow these things to happen to me? Why am I still struggling with these sins? Why am I still being defeated in this way? Look to the cross. Because you and I know that at the end of the day, that God is working all of these things out for our good. By the way, not that the things that happen in our life are good. I always tell my kids, this is how I explain providence to my kids. I tell them, I said, when you're baking a cake, imagine if you ate the, the eggs, and then you ate the flour, then you ate the sugar, and then you ate all of the butter, all of those things separately. Would that taste good? And they would be like, no, Daddy, that's gross. But what happens when you put all of them together? You get a cake, right? Those things individually are not that tasty. But when you put them together and you bake them and you allow them to, to work together, you get something good. That's the doctrine of sovereignty and providence. Beloved, I'm not saying that the abuse you've uh, undergone or the depression you might have or all the frustration and pain in your life, that those things are good. Of course they're not. But what are they leading you towards? That's the good. That's the beauty and the wonder of God and how he works in the world. Now, why am, I, why am I laying down this foundation? This is an important foundation because this is what Jonah is about, right? Notice all of the things in Jonah. In fact, there's, there's multiples. There's over 20 different references to God's providence in the book of Jonah. If you find more, I'll give you five bucks. All right, I've been looking at this for a long time, but I want to know if there's more. Maybe I might miss something, right? But notice just in chapter one and two alone, you can see throughout how God's providence and his sovereignty is over Jonah's life, bringing Jonah to a place of repentance and forgiveness. Notice in verse number one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. What specifically did the word of the Lord uh, do when it came to Jonah? It told Jonah, rise and go to Nineveh. Why would God tell Jonah that specifically? What is it about Jonah's sin and his unrighteousness that he needed to go to Nineveh specifically? Because Jonah had a misunderstanding of God's uh, word and application, not just to his people, but all people. He didn't understand God's grace. And so for him to understand God's grace, God gave him an assignment specifically designed for him. Not anybody else, just for him. That's a sign of God's providence. Now, did Jonah take it that way? Of course not. He ran. Right? And in the midst of his disobedience, what did God have to do? Notice verse number four. God sent a wind. What was the wind for? We're going to get to that in a little bit. But it's because of God's providence in Jonah's life that he had to send a wind to bring Jonah back into conformity to him. 
Then if you jump down to verse number 17, and we read this just this, mor- this just this morning, God prepared a great fish. Why would God do that? Because Jonah's disobedient. He's running from God. Another example of God's providence in Jonah's life. And by the way, Jonah understands this. Notice chapter 2 and verse number 3. Who does Jonah say cast him in the deep? For you, reference to Yahweh, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows pass over me. You know what? Jonah has a better understanding of God's sovereignty and providence than we do. Because Jonah knows right off the bat all of this has happened. Jonah doesn't blame uh, the sailors for what happened to him. Jonah doesn't spend, even though it was the sailors that picked him up and threw him into the water, Jonah understands it's not the sailors' fault. That's, that's not, it's not ultimately the sailors that's behind all of this. And here, here is something that's important. I'm going completely off script because I'm, I'm sharing with you a, of not only my heart, but I think what's the human heart. The human heart is to blame everyone around them for all the bad things that are happening to them. Let me say this to you. You will destroy yourself if you continuously blame others for what God is trying to do in your life. You will will destroy yourself and you will destroy others around you. Jonah doesn't blame anyone or anything else. He understands that it is God's hand that's on him, allowing each and every one of these things to happen to bring him to a place of repentance and a closer walk with him. That's what, that's what Jonah 2.3 says, right? That's evident to all of us. You can see that in his word. So what is my admonition to you, right? My admonition to you is pause for a moment and stop blaming everyone and everything around you and look to God. Go to God. He is the one that is allowing these things to happen, not to harm you, but to heal you, to conform you more into the image of Christ. This is a powerful lesson for the Christian because so many people, so many people, you've heard it and you've probably done it. I've heard it and I've done it where we're quick to blame everyone around us for our problem and our fault. Instead of looking and seeing what God is trying to teach us in the midst of that. That's what God is doing to Jonah here. Now, real quick, I want to point out two things. Just two things from this passage. Two ways in which we see the providence and sovereignty of God being administered to Jonah. There's so many ways, but I only want to pick out two. First of all, I want to show you that through this storm, God is using this storm in such a way to bring about confession and repentance in Jonah and also in the fish, right? The storm and the fish. And real briefly, I'll, I'll abbreviate this and get right at the heart of it. Notice the storm that God, set, God, God sends in verse number four. These are meta realities, right? The storm and the fish. Now, if you were reading this story, you would think that God is a mean God, a vicious God, sending this storm and providing this fish to harm Jonah. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Notice that this storm, God hurls this great wind on the sea, this mighty tempest. And there are two reasons for this. One, one of course, is literal and practical. Jonah is heading to Tarshish. That's not where God wants him to go. So the storm comes to stop Jonah in his tracks, to prevent Jonah from going to Tarshish. God doesn't want him to go there. But the storm also does something else. Now, let me take a step back. If you were an Israelite reading this passage 
and you read that Yahweh hurled a storm um, to stop Jonah, immediately your mind would go to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. I'll pause for a moment. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, here's what the Bible says. We'll start, we'll begin at verse number 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the face of the waters. Every single Israelite who read this story of God hurling this big wind and this big storm towards Jonah would have immediately realized the spiritual implications of this. In the same way there was a storm brewing outside, there was a massive storm brewing inside of Jonah. And that massive storm that was brewing inside of Jonah was Jonah's sinful, wicked heart. In fact, the the French um, commentator, Jaxel Lowell, describes Jonah like this, that Jonah was a sick man in agony who was spiritually dead on the inside. You see, the darkness and the void that was in Jonah's soul, in Jonah's soul, that's what God was ultimately trying to deal with. Yes, he's trying to stop him from going to Tarshish, but he's also trying to deal with the sin and unrighteousness in Jonah's heart. And hear me today, Jonah was running, right? He was running away from the word of the Lord. But there were two things Jonah cannot run from, right? The first thing Jonah could not run from was Yahweh. Why? Because Yahweh is everywhere. But you know what else Jonah couldn't run from? Himself. And can I tell you, you can't run from yourself either. It is amazing to me, whenever people get into a place in their life, when they are filled with inner turmoil, when they're filled with sin, when, they're filled, when their heart is indifferent and disobedient towards God, they try and do all sorts of things to alleviate that pain. But can I tell you, you cannot because you cannot run from yourself. As the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and as this storm came to Jonah, this storm was designed to show Jonah, not only can you not run from Yahweh, but you can't run from the sin and the wickedness in your own heart. That must be dealt with. And in a severe act of mercy towards Jonah, what does Yahweh do? He sends a storm. Could you, could you for a moment imagine what would happen if Jonah was allowed to go to Tarshish? Ponder that for a moment. What do you think would have happened to Jonah if he was allowed to run away from the presence of the Lord? If he was allowed to not do what Yahweh had called him to do? Jonah would have spent the rest of his life miserable and a wretch and, and completely spiritually dead. Why? Because he wasn't doing what God called him to do. In a severe act of mercy, God sent a storm. And that storm was designed not to harm Jonah, but to heal him, to stop him in his tracks. And we know this from this. Look at uh, Jonah chapter 1 again. Notice that immediately, in verse number 15, immediately when Jonah was picked up and hurled into the sea, the sea ceased from raging. Uh, Now, as you read that, what came into your mind? Immediately, what should have come into your mind is this reality, that the one thing that Jonah was running from, the inner turmoil that Jonah had, the storm came, stopped him in his tracks, and now that he's thrown off the boat, everything stopped. And that was a sign. In the passage, that was a sign 
that our wrestling and our raging and the storm in our own heart are only calmed when we start walking in obedience to Yahweh. That's what this storm was for. The spiritual application, brothers and sisters, is simply this. When you and I, when you and I come to a place in our life when we're walking in disobedience to God, not only can we not run from God, but we cannot run from each other. And God's severe mercy at often times is to give you, like Paul, a thorn in your flesh in order to humble you and to make you more into the image of Jesus Christ. That's the same reason for the fish. Why did God appoint the fish? Point number two, why did God appoint this fish? Well, God appointed this fish to deal with Jonah's sin. Jonah needed to be placed into, Jonah needed to be in a realm so that he can uh, have repentance. By the way, Jonah is thrown into the, into the ocean. As you read this text, as Jonah is thrown into the waters, what was Jonah thinking? Jonah knew there was no boats around there. Jonah knew there was no way for him to be saved. Ultimately, Jonah was trying to kill himself. In my opinion, as I read the text, Jonah is again trying to escape away from the presence of the Lord. And he does it by trying to kill himself. Again, if you look at chapter 4, he asks to die twice. Jonah's in a place in his life where he still doesn't want to be obedient to God, even though God has called Jonah to be in conformity to him, to repent. This was Jonah's last-ditch effort to escape from doing what God wanted him to do. So he said, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Well, what's the purpose of that, Jonah? Your death isn't going to accomplish anything, at least not like that. Jonah needed to die in a different way. He needed to die to self. And how do you die to self? Repentance. That's what chapter 2 is all about. We'll get to that next week. Repentance is the way that you and I ultimately die to self. Repentance is a directional term, and I wish I had the time to go into this. It's interesting to me, the repentance, the whole concept of repentance is a directional term. It literally means to turn around. And in the narrative, what does Jonah do? Jonah turns around. The, the fish comes, swallows Jonah. He's going to Tarshish. Then the, 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 the whale or whatever it is turned back around and took him back to where God wanted him to do, and that's Nineveh. So Jonah is having a moment, or God has prepared for Jonah, this moment of deep and profound repentance. That's what God had planned to do from the very beginning. Now, you're sitting down there thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute. God prepared this storm. God prepared this fish. What was God trying to do? Well, I'll end with this. God was not trying to kill Jonah. That's clear in this passage, right? If God truly wanted to kill Jonah, God would have caused him to stroke out, have a heart attack, or get killed by uh, killer bees. Whatever, right? Uh, or killer hornets. That's the new rogue, right? That's what's in vogue right now. If God truly wanted to kill Jonah, God would have used those methods. But notice each method that God uses is designed to bring Jonah to repentance. And the question is, why is that the case? I want to leave you with something. It's one of my favorite chapters of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's, it's in our standard. And it asks this very question. Why does God, in fact, it says this. Why does God allow his own children to suffer manifold temptations and corruptions of their own hearts? So it's asking the question, 
Why does God allow Jonah to go through this to begin with? Why did God allow Jonah to go through this suffering and this pain to begin with? And here are the four reasons that the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, gives. It's chapter 5, point number 5, and these are powerful. These have served me in my life and in my ministry. And here are the four. First of all, to chastise us for our former sins. In other words, why does God allow Jonah to go through this? To chastise Jonah for his sins. Jonah's running away from the presence of the Lord. God doesn't want him to do that, so God punishes Jonah. He isn't trying to kill Jonah, but he's trying to chastise Jonah. And the whole point of chastisement is to bring us back into conformity with Christ. But notice the second reason. To discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled. Why did God do this to Jonah? Because Jonah was self-righteous and he needed to be humbled. Why does God allow you to go through so much pain and suffering? Well, because you're prideful and you're self-righteous and you need to be humbled. And here's a quick tip. Humble yourself quickly. <laughs> right? Because otherwise, there's more strife to come. God is relentless. He will not stop. Humble yourself now before the hand of God. Stop resisting him. But here's the third one. To raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself. So the third reason they give is so that you could learn to be, um, not only be humble, but the third reason is so that you could find yourself more dependent upon God. That's the point. That's the reason why God allowed this to happen. And the fourth one, the fourth one, to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sins and for other sundry and other just and holy ends. That's why God allows us to go through pain and suffering, so that we can be watchful in the future over our sins. Let me say this. Whenever you go through a struggle and a trial, do you sit down and tell yourself, do you prepare yourself for that to happen again? Do you? Do you ever? Have you ever thought about that? Like you get angry at your children. Do you ever stop and think, okay, how can I do better next time in not being angry, getting angry over things, or getting frustrated over things? That's one of the reasons why God allows us to go through these struggles and these pains, so that we can learn and be more watchful for it. Now, big takeaway. Big takeaway is simply this. God's providential hand is always on his people for good. And let me end by saying this. You know, we believe that right up until we have to live it. You know, Jonah would have agreed with Abraham Kuyper and John Piper about sovereignty and providence. A little bit anachronistic there. He would have believed them. He would have said, Amen. But the real test came when the word of the Lord came to him and he had to actually put that into practice. And you and I sitting in the pew need to understand this. Our theology, God will never allow our theology to remain cognitive only. It always seeps into experience. And if you haven't experienced it or you are experiencing it, I promise you, you will experience it. You, God will bring you to a place in your life where he's not only calling you to believe in his sovereignty and his providence, but he's calling you to live it. And when that time comes, that's when this information needs to seep from your head down into your heart and out into your life. 
That's what he's calling us to do. And that's what we see in Jonah through God's act of sovereignty and providence. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that we can clearly see your acts of sovereignty and providence in your word. Lord, um, it's remarkable to me. It's everywhere in the book of Jonah. It's everywhere that you are sovereign. It's everywhere that your providential hand is on us, your people. Lord, help that reality not to just be cognitive, but help us, help it to be experiential. Help us to live it. Help us not to be like Jonah and run away from it. But instead, help us to be, help us to embrace it. Help us to understand what you're doing in light of it. Father, bless all of us. We, we are wanderers. We are exiles, as was mentioned earlier. And for us to live in this world, we have to trust that you are sovereign and that your acts of providence are for our good. And Father, in those moments when you call us to live that out, strengthen our hearts that we might be able to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.